All right, let's begin with the word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, you are the living God, the one true living God. Uh, we come before your word now and we seek the truth and we seek to be encouraged and strengthened by it and reminded of key things. Bless us now in our time together in your word. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Uh, the message that we're going to be looking at today is from 1 Timothy chapter 3. We have looked at the qualifications for overseers. We've looked at the qualifications for deacons. And now we come to verse uh, 14 of 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to close out the chapter together now as I'm recording this on a Friday. To those of you who can't be with us on Sunday morning, this is, uh, generally speaking, and so much as I'll be able to, to uh, repeat it, the same message that we will be covering together on Sunday morning so you are still on track with us even as we uh, maintain some distance between ourselves. So 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14, let me read now the whole text, and then we'll come back and work through it. Uh, Paul writes, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. And without controversy... Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up in glory. So that is the text. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3 comes to a close. Now let's start working through these verses just a little bit here. Uh, verse 14 begins, These things I write to you. Uh, though I hope to come to you shortly. And then verse 15 says, But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. And I think here it's important to get a sense of Paul's urgency when talking to Timothy. And you can kind of get a feel of it. Uh, when I say urgency, what I mean is, he says in verse 14, he is planning to come shortly, but if he's delayed, he needed to write so that they could conduct themselves rightly. In other words, uh, I'm going to come, I want to come to you shortly. Nevertheless, if I can't come, this is important enough that you need to know it whether I'm there to deliver it in person or not. In other words, this is essential for operation. You need to know how to conduct yourself in the house of God. Now, we've looked at a lot of really important things so far in 1 Timothy. We have looked at uh, dealing with false teachers and false doctrine and qualifications for pastors, qualifications for deacons. Uh, we've, we've looked at some very difficult operation things, how men ought to conduct themselves in the church, how women ought to conduct themselves in the church. But for this particular portion of the text, it's singular. These things I write to you, Though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I'm delayed, I write to you so that you may know how you, Timothy, ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. Because if Timothy, if the pastor will get it right, if he knows, then he might instruct others. And it is urgently important. It is something we can't wait uh, to, to do correctly. So all of these things are important. As tedious as they may be to some of us who are very familiar with them, they are extremely important. Notice there the phrasing then, the house of God. The house of God. When I think of the phrase, the house of God, I think of Bethel in the Old Testament. Bethel uh, from the word Baith and the word El. El meaning God, Baith meaning dwelling place. Uh, Bethel in the Old Testament uh, in, the, in the Hebrew meant house of God. And uh, Bethel is the place that several Old Testament patriarchs, or the name that several Old Testament patriarchs would use to refer to the place where they had visited with God, where they had seen God. 
where they had had, had a, a, a revelation of God bestowed to them. Uh, probably the most uh, popular of which would be Genesis chapter 28. In Genesis chapter 28, there is Jacob, and if you don't know a lot about Jacob's history, he's in a difficult time uh, in Genesis chapter 28 because he's done something, frankly, wrong. He's stolen his brother Esau's birthright. He's now kind of fleeing for his life, and, and shortly out from his parents' house as he's, as he's uh, leaving everything he's known before and uh, heading to a new land, he stops at a particular place, and he lays his head down, it says, on a rock. And he has a dream, and the dream begins with this, it says a ladder in the English translations. It probably was a staircase, a stairway, and there are angels descending and ascending up and down this stairway that goes from the earth uh, where he was at uh, all the way up into heaven. And at the top of, of this staircase is Yahweh God, and he speaks to Jacob. And the whole image is of this idea that Yahweh God uh, is not absent-minded, and he is not distracted, nor he is, nor is he ambivalent to what goes on on the earth. The idea is Yahweh God is intimately concerned with what happens on the earth, so much so that in the revelation of himself to his servant Jacob, he reveals himself by demonstrating to Jacob this symbolic ladder, this symbolic staircase where even though God and man are separate, separate because of sin, separate because of what happened in the Garden of Eden, separate because there is a holy God that cannot be in unfettered fellowship with a sinful man, even though God and man are separate, God is constantly working in the world, and that's pictured by these angels moving up and down this staircase. And then in the words of God, he announces that he is Yahweh God and and he will never leave Jacob. He will accomplish his purposes in Jacob. He will be with Jacob and he will accomplish all that he said that he will do. So this idea of the house of God is the idea that God dwells where the house of God is. God can be met. God can be seen. God can be fellowshiped with where the house of God is. But here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, we find the house of God is not a structure or a building or a place like what Jacob experienced. You know, Jacob leaves that place and he calls it Bethel, the house of God, because that's where he met God. But, but when it says here, I write to you, Timothy, so that if I'm delayed, you may know how to conduct yourself in the house of God. He's not talking about a place. He's not talking about a land structure where, where Jacob once laid his head on a rock. He's not talking about the temple mount. He's not talking. He's talking about a people, a people. And we see that in the next verse, don't we? In the next phrase, it says, But if I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, or the ekklesia. That's the Greek word for church. The ekklesia of the living God. And ekklesia did not mean building. No one in ancient Greece would hear the idea, would hear the, the Greek word ekklesia. No one would hear that in the Roman world, ekklesia, and think of a building. To, to, and ekklesia was an assembly. It was a group of people who were called out and called together for a purpose. They were called out of where they were. They were called together for a purpose, and so they were in ecclesia. They were a group of those who had been called out. And so what this says is, I want you to know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the called out people 
of the living God. The called out people of the living God. Think about that phrase, the living God. Uh, when I think of the phrase, the living God, I think of Daniel chapter 6. You know what happens in Daniel chapter 6? You do, even if you don't know that it's in Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6 is Daniel in the lion's den, uh, to where the king Darius is deceived into, into uh, making this decree, whereby if Daniel is caught praying, he gets to be thrown into the lion's den to devoured by the lions. But the king doesn't want to see Daniel executed. And so when he's caught in this, this binding arrangement of Persian rule where he can't take back something that he's already decreed, he goes and he, you know, Daniel is taken, he's put in the lion's den, and Darius is there when Daniel is lowered in the lion's den. And, and, the, and the lion's den is sealed. He's there. And what he says to Daniel is, uh, upon Daniel entering the lion's den, he says, uh, Daniel, servant of the living God. You know, in the morning when he goes to see if Daniel's still alive, he goes to the mouth of the lion's den and he calls and he says, Daniel, servant of the living God. Not servant of a dead God. Not servant of an idol not servant of an impotent, an impotent God. It doesn't say, Daniel, you servant of Baal, that statue that can't do anything. Or Daniel, you servant of Allah, that false God. He says, Daniel, servant of the living God. Has your God protected you? And then seeing that God had protected Daniel, Darius says this in Daniel chapter 6, verse 26. He says, I make a decree... That in every dominion of my kingdom men must tremble in fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God. And he is steadfast forever. His kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed and his dominion shall endure to the end. Christians, that's the God that we serve. We don't serve a God on a shelf. We don't serve a golden Buddha. We don't serve some mysticism portrayed in pictures and relics. We serve a God that is alive. We serve a living God. We serve a God who still speaks. We serve a God who hears. And we serve a God who acts. And what this verse is talking about in 1 Timothy chapter 3 is that the house of God is the people of God. The people of a God who lives and acts in the lives of those people and through the lives of those people so that if someone in the world or if someone in the church wants to experience fellowship and right relationship with God, they must go to the house of God, they must go to God's people and from God's people they will hear words of life, words of life because they come from God. From God's people, they will see acts of righteousness, true righteousness that comes from God. And among God's people, they will experience love, true love, because it comes from God. This is what Jesus means when he says, By this all men shall know that you are my disciples, when they see your love one for another. Because that love is a love from God. It's the love of a God who is alive, the love of a God who is active, and the love of a God who is working in the midst of his called out people where he dwells, his house. Jesus says in John 10, 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. You see, we serve a living God who has called us. And Christian, if you are a Christian, it's because in your heart, in your mind, in your being, you have heard the call of the Bible to repent and to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you heard it through a pastor. Maybe you heard it through a book. Maybe you heard it by picking up the Bible and reading it for yourself. 
But if you are a Christian, it's because you've heard the call of God as expressed in God's Word and you've responded and so you have been called out. Ecclesia, a people who has been called out of the life that you live. And now your life having been bought with the price that you, can't, that you couldn't have paid on your own. Your life been bought with the price you are now one of God's people, a person of the living God. And you are called into assembly with other people. You know, that's the other thing about this idea of the house of God. It's not talking about one person individually. The church, the called out ones, the place where God dwells can never be one person individually. It's an assembly. It is a people whom God has called out and called together. My sheep, plural, hear my voice and they follow me. And that is where God may be met in this world among his people. Now look at what Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 3. He says, I want you to know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. Now, you've got to put those things together. The pillar and the ground of the truth. What is that? Well, it tells us. The pillar and the ground of the church, uh, the pillar and the ground of the truth is the church of the living God. The people of the living God, where God dwells, those people are the pillar, the foundation, the grounds of the truth. Now, we ask the question, what truth? You know, the Bible, and Jesus in particular, says a lot of very compelling and mysterious things about the truth. Now, I'm going to start and end with the same one as I, as I read some of these to you. This is John 8.32. We'll wrap with this one too. John 8.32, Jesus says, And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. That is interesting. Here's another one. John 1, 14 through 17 Jesus and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. It's talking about Jesus, who is, next phrase, full of grace and truth. How is a person full of truth? Verse 15, John bore witness of Him, and he cried out, saying, This, is, this was He of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for He was before me, and of His fullness we have all received, and grace for grace, for the law was given through Moses. But, here it is, John 1, verse 17, But grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. What does that mean? What does that mean? Simply that Jesus says true things, it has to mean more than that. Because you and I can say true things, but grace and truth don't come from us. We may be able to recite the truth, but grace and truth don't come from us. I may know the truth, and I may rehearse it to you, but the truth doesn't come from me. What does this mean? In John chapter 4, verse 23, Jesus is meeting with the woman at the well, right? And she asks him about where they should worship these Samaritan people. And this is what Jesus tells her. Listen to how mysterious this is. Listen, but the hour is coming, and it now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. The hour is coming, and now it's here, He says. 
with the revelation of himself, the Messiah. The hour is coming and it is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit. That we can understand. God is spirit, but also truth. What does that mean? John chapter 18, verses 37 through 38. This is Jesus in this final confrontation with Pilate as he is about to be sent off to his crucifixion. And Pilate is questioning him. And in verse 37 of John 18, it says, Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? And Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause, to be a king, I was born. And for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. The truth that he is a king. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Everyone who is of the truth. It's not talking about just saying true things. This is talking about some greater existential truth. Some truth that is beyond the recitation of any one person. This is talking about a truth, not simply an honest person. Pilate said to him, in almost despair, you hear it in Pilate's voice, perhaps mockery. He says in verse 38 of John 18, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. So discouraged was Pilate with the status of what he was observing in the world around him. That the idea that there could even be some greater existential truth was absurd to him. He had seen perhaps so much injustice and manipulation, experiencing both the demands of Caesar balanced with the demands of the Jews, Pilate being a part of the manipulations of both and certainly untold numbers of deceits to keep all the various parties that he was tasked with appeasing satisfied. And at this point in Pilate's life, he has totally given up on the idea that there could even be some all-powerful, greater governing of some absolute truth. And he just says to Jesus' statement, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. He just answers in despair, perhaps with a shrug, perhaps with a chuckle. I don't know. Maybe just really sad. But he says, what is truth? And he walks away. Totally given up on the idea of it. But I bring you back now to Jesus' statement in John 8, 32. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. We need to know this truth. Because it says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, that God's people, the called out ones, you and I Christians are supposed to be the pillar and the ground of the truth. So we need to know this truth. What is it? You know that this verse, John 8, 32, was etched into the original lobby of the original CIA headquarters building. You see, it was there in that spy agency's headquarters because it bears with it, the idea of the truth will set you free, bears with it the implication that someone is imprisoned by what they don't know. If you say the truth will set you free, you will know the truth, and then the truth will make you free. You get the idea someone is imprisoned, someone is enslaved, someone is captive, and they are captivated, they are made captive by what they don't know. And so if they know the truth, then they can be free. Two points about this. One, 
no matter how much we give ourselves to study, freedom, true freedom, always requires action. That's point number one about the truth. True freedom always requires action. Knowing the truth can only set you free if it enables you to take action to free yourself or if this newfound truth is a realization of some action that's already been taken by someone else on your behalf. I'll give you a couple examples. A pilot who knows that his plane is crashing is no more free than the passengers who think the plane is just in turbulence. He may know the truth that they're crashing, but he is no more set free by the truth than the passengers who might otherwise be oblivious unless he can take some action with that knowledge to save himself or to save the plane. If he can't take any action to save himself or the plane, he is not set free in any meaningful way from the reality of the situation that he's in. The passengers may all be operating under the deception that everything's okay. Maybe not a deliberate deception. deception. Maybe it's just their assumption. It's just turbulence and everything's okay. The pilot may be the only one who knows the truth, that things are not okay. And yet he is not free, no more free than the passengers, unless he can take some action to free himself from the situation. Unless the truth of the situation somehow enables him to maneuver the plane or to take some course of action and save themselves. So, point number one, freedom always requires action. Simply knowing something never, never sets someone free. Unless, example number two, imagine a prisoner who is a captive in his cell even if the cell is unlocked, he is not free unless he knows that it's unlocked. In other words, he might very well sit in the cell day after day, deceived by who knows how many countless memories of his lifetime in that jail cell, where he's banged on the door when it was locked and it never opened, and now that door may be unlocked, may be unlocked at night by his Savior. And he has no idea that it's unlocked. And he is, the, he is no more free from that being unlocked until he realizes that it's unlocked. And then he is only free because someone else has taken action. In other words, simply knowing something is never enough to set someone free from what they're held captive by. Action is always required. Either action on their part, based on what they know, or action on someone else's part that they now understood has taken place. The person in the prison is free if he realizes someone else has taken the action of unlocking the door. And he's free to walk through. But he's not free if he doesn't realize someone has taken that action. But it always requires action. Since the Bible says that knowing the truth sets someone free, it's John 8, 32, that implies that when the Bible says that, the action to do the freeing, to accomplish that freedom, the action has been accomplished by someone else. The action has been taken by someone else. So that we are like the prisoner in the cell with the door unlocked, yet 
still prisoners, still not free from the jail until we realize that the action's been taken. The Bible does not say in John 8.32, and you shall know the truth and free yourself. It says, and you shall know the truth, and knowing the truth will set you free. Someone has done something to free us. And the great tragedy and sham of the world is that the overwhelming majority of the people in the world don't realize it. In fact, no one realizes it until they know the truth. And the moment they know the truth, they're free because it's already been accomplished for them. There's no action on our part required to free ourselves. We just need to know that the cell is unlocked and we'll be free. So the first point, freedom always requires action. The second point about this, there is only one captivity that all human beings need rescued from. If you want to know what Jesus is talking about when he says, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free, he can only be talking about one thing, because there is only one captivity that holds all mankind, and that is death and hell. Death, it is appointed and a man wants to die. Death, in 2020, at the end of 2019, the world has been overcome by a fear of death. People wear masks and people distance and governments tank their economies and they shut down and they put trackers in people in foreign countries and they do all sorts of things because of fear of death. It is the great enemy that holds every one of us captive. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 55, when thinking about what Jesus has accomplished for us, says, Old death, where is your sting? Old Hades, old hell, where is your victory? Why does he call out death and hell? Because those are the enemies. Those are my captors. That's what I'm held captive by. When Jesus says, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free, he wasn't talking about the coronavirus. He wasn't talking about, You'll show, you shall know the truth of the government and that truth will set you free. He wasn't talking about the CIA and the motto that they had on the lobby of their original headquarters, foreign espionage. You will know the truth of what spies are doing in your country and that will set you free. He wasn't saying any of that. And he wasn't saying that generally speaking, knowing the truth provides freedom. That's not what Jesus was saying. And by the way, it doesn't. It doesn't. Generally speaking, knowing the truth does not provide freedom. Not without action. And so many of us are entirely incapable of the action required to free us when we find out the truth about something in our lives. Let me ask you a question. The cancer patient who finds out the truth, is he free? Is he free? He wasn't feeling well for a while. He didn't realize he had cancer. He goes to the doctor. They do a bunch of tests, stage four cancer. Best case scenario, let's say they tell him three to six months. Is he free? You could argue, well, he's psychologically free, you know. He can start to mentally prepare. He can control the last three to six months of his life. Of his life. That's a bunch of nonsense. He's not free, and he doesn't feel free either because the clock is ticking and there's nothing he can do about it no matter how much he knows about cancer 
if you know the truth about the value and responsibility of parenthood. Like so many people find out the truth about the value and the responsibility of parenthood when their children are fully grown and they look back on their lives and they say, I wish I had spent more time with my kids. I wish I had poured more energy into my kids. I wish I hadn't worked that job and stayed home with my kids. I wish I had done this with my children because at the end of the day, my children are the things that matter most to me in this world. Is knowing the truth of that at the age of 60 when your kids are full grown, is that freeing? Does that set you free? That doesn't set you free. Does that set you free from guilt because now you know the truth? It doesn't. <laughs> Does it set you free? Does the truth set you free when you realize that you spent three times too much money on your house? <laughs> you can't sell it except for like a third of what you paid for it and you're in debt up to your eyeballs and, and you can't get out of it because you paid too much? Does knowing the truth of that set you free? It doesn't. There is only one captivity that Jesus has in mind when he says that if people know the truth, they will be set free. And that's the reality of sin, death, and hell. And to that captivity, he proclaims to all who will hear him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And here it is. This is the truth that is Jesus. This is the message that saves us, the message that frees us, because it shows us that someone has already taken action on our behalf that we couldn't take. We are in the prison. We can't pick the lock. And someone has taken the action of securing our rescue. And we can walk out a free person if we only know it. And this is the truth of Jesus. Now here it is described to us in verse 9. Okay, here is the gospel. Here is the truth of Jesus' life, purpose, and mission. And it is beautiful. We're going to close with this. Here we are. Verse 9 says this, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. In other words, just to summarize that real quick, without dispute among the church, without any argument among the church, here it is. This is the truth. This is the mystery of godliness. This is how godliness is accomplished in a person's life. This is the freedom. Okay? This is how it's purchased. Here it is. God was manifested in the flesh. Jesus came. God showed up in the flesh. You know what that means? That is the physical embodiment of Jacob's ladder. God descended down the ladder and took on flesh on the earth himself. God cares about us. He cares about our neighbors. He cares about our friends. And he cares about our enemies. He cares and he loves and he's taken action. He's not some imperceivable deity who has distanced himself from creation and is now just tapping his chin and waiting to see how things play out. No, He has interjected Himself in the flesh among us. He cares. God was manifested in the flesh. Part 2, justified in the Spirit. That manifestation of God in the flesh is the person of Jesus. And He was righteous. He was sinless in spirit. He was spiritually acceptable to God. The Bible says in the Old Testament that our righteousness is like filthy rags. And boy, is that true. 
You try to do the right thing and you're going to do the wrong thing at least half the time. Our righteousness is not good enough. We always have selfish motives or ulterior motives or our own little manipulating mindset or our own little self-interest here. We are not pure in this regard. But Jesus was justified in the Spirit. He was the sinless man. He was spiritually acceptable to God. Third part, seen by angels. The angels in heaven watched as this spiritually righteous man, God in flesh, laid down his life in the public riot that was the crucifixion. In the earthly injustice that was the crucifixion, the angels observed, knowing who Jesus was, having bowed in honor to him in heaven, they now observe the destruction of his flesh on the earth and they wonder, what is God doing? That he would allow Jesus to be treated like this to be stripped and beaten and crucified. What is the purpose? And then they watch as He has risen on the third day and ascended into glory and has conquered over the enemy of Satan and has, has risen victorious. They watch and they have observed and they bear testimony. And the Bible tells us that the angels submit to the Lord Jesus Christ and that at His return to this earth they will obey His will. In Matthew chapter 13 there's the parable of the wheat and the tares and it is the angels who go out among the people and separate them for the judgment of Jesus Christ. The angels, the angels bear witness. Then it says, preached among the Gentiles. God did not send the Jewish Messiah specifically for the Jewish people only. He sent the Messiah of the Jews to die on the cross for people who were not His people. God was manifested in the flesh, lived a sinless life, and then gave His life on the cross for people who were not His. It is no great admirable thing for me to give my own life to save my son or to save my daughter or to save my wife or to save a people who are my people but it is a great noble admirable and unthinkable thing to give your life to save your enemy the Messiah of God has been preached to those who were his enemies. Preached to the Gentiles. It says then, believed on in the world. Oh yes, Jesus died in front of the eyes of the world. He rose from the grave in front of the eyes of the world. And he has saved those who believe on him in the world. And you want to know how amazing that is? That a man who was crucified, a poor Middle Eastern Jewish man who was crucified 2,000 years ago has amassed a following of billions of billions of believers in him. Though he never led an army, 
He never conquered and forced people to convert under the power of a sword. That was never Jesus. Others did that hundreds of years later in Jesus' name, but that was after the gospel of Jesus spread through the message of peace, through the message of reconciliation through a dead Messiah. He has been believed on in the world because what he did and what he said and what he accomplished is true and powerful. And finally, 1 Timothy chapter 3 ends with this, received up into glory. Emphasis on glory. Jesus ascended into heaven, not as some conquered, defeated man. He came to save the Jews, but alas, it ended in his crucifixion. Mission failed. No. No. He was received up in glory. Why? Because the mission was accomplished. It was accomplished in his death. When he offered himself the sinless sacrifice, one justified in the spirit, the sinless sacrifice to pay for the sin of those who couldn't pay for it themselves. Jesus alone was qualified to pay for my sin with his life. If I tried to pay for someone else's sin with my life, I couldn't do it. If I were to die, slit my wrist, offer my life to God as a sacrifice for someone else's sin, I couldn't do it. Do you know why? Because when I die, I'll only be getting what I deserve. I'm not sinless. I deserve death. I can't offer my life and death as a payment for anyone else's wrongdoing. I can't pay for their death for them. Why? Because when I die, that's simply what I deserve. I don't have a sinless life to offer. I don't have a sinless sacrifice to make. Jesus did. And He offered it. God offered it in His Son. He did not spare even His only Son, the Bible tells us. But He offered it as a mission of compassion and mercy and grace to those who were His enemies so that Hosea chapter 1 says this, he has given the right to a people who were not his people to be called the sons of the living God. And that's who we're supposed to be. The church, the people of the living God. That's the language from Hosea chapter 1. I think it's verse 10. Those who are not my people shall be called the sons of the living God. And I am. I may not be much to look at. But I am a son of God. Adopted into his family by the purchase of Jesus Christ's blood. This, and only this, is the truth that sets me free. This, and only this, is my mission. This, and only this, is the pillar and ground of the truth that the world must hear from me and from you. You can convince someone the truth of what they should do with their money. 
the truth of what they should do with their health, the truth of what they should do with their family, and you might free them to be wealthy, or you might free them to be healthy, or you might free them to have a happy home life. But do you know what's going to happen? The wealthy, healthy, and happy person is going to die. And the truths that you offered to set them free from poverty, sickness, and unhappiness aren't going to help them. When they stand before God in judgment and they give an account for their life and they're found guilty and sentenced to eternal damnation in a lake of fire where they will never escape. Jesus and this message of His gospel is the truth that sets them free and nothing else. And this is our message that we have to take to them. We have no choice in the matter if we believe. If we have been set free ourselves, we must be this pillar of truth to other people. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for your love for me. And I thank you for the the way that your word can recenter us. And Father, please transform us into the people that we need to be so that all the world around us might hear this truth and be set freed from sin. When we say that, you know what we mean. Set free from death and set free from hell. Oh, Father, save souls. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.